Amen. Morning, family. Thanks, Blake. We're going to get right into it this morning, so I encourage you to grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. If there's not one nearby, then raise your hand and somebody will give you one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it, use it. Uh, if you get a new one that you like better, give it away. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, uh, looking at verses 14 through 21, perhaps uh, not for the last time in like the sense of like ever, but like maybe the last time in the sense of this series we've been walking through. So Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. Let's uh, read it together this morning. And when we get to the end of that reading, I'm going to say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to say thanks be to God. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we look at the final couple verses here, so we're going to be spending time looking specifically at verses 20 through 21 this morning. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As we look at these final verses of this part of this chapter uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the final words of what really is his prayer for them for spiritual strength, like we talked about last week, that they would be, that we would be built together joined together as the temple of God and that we would not simply be a structure that was empty but rather as the living temple of God that we would be filled with the spirit and the presence of God by Christ himself who is the glory of God. And so we see Paul praying for them that they would be filled with all the fullness of God which is Christ himself. And we see Paul yet again lift his eyes toward God toward Him in all of His majesty and holiness. And He's filled with this doxological, this worshipful praise and adoration for the One who is abundantly able. I mean, that's essentially what's happening here. He's praying these things for the church. He, he affirms that God is able to do that which He has asked Him to do. And in that that recognition, even in his own prayer, Paul is led into worship as he's praying. 
I wonder how often we think about our prayers as being worshipful, right? Often we think of worship as simply the stuff we do when there's music playing and we're singing, but rather there, every bit of our lives is meant to be worship unto God. And most especially these times of prayer when we are, we are pouring out, as we talked about a few weeks ago, pouring out our hearts to God, that these should be a pouring out that is worshipful, that it is, is done in adoration and praise to God. Remember, as we walk through kind of a way to pray, and we, we use that ACTS acronym, that it was adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. And so our prayers, like Paul's here, should be filled with praise, with adoration, with love for God because of who He is and what He has done what he is doing, what he is able to do. Amen? And so Paul is not merely wishing. I want you to see that, right? This is not, oh God, I wish you may, I wish you might. Give me this thing that I wish for tonight. That's, that's not what Paul is doing here. This is not Jiminy Cricket wishing upon a star in Pinocchio. This is a man full of faith, full of full of zeal and full of love for God, looking unto God who he says is able. Not only able, but able to do far more abundantly than even these things that Paul is asking. Let's remind ourselves what Paul is asking. He's asking that they would, according to the riches of his glory, be granted to be strengthened with power through his Inner, who through his spirit in their inner being, he's praying that Christ himself may dwell in their hearts through faith. He's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in love above all things, which is the greatest spiritual gift. And he's praying that they would have strength to comprehend. I mean, grab this, that they would have the ability somehow in their finite brains to comprehend the infinite love of Christ. that they, He says that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Paul is praying for some pretty specific, pretty big things here. Things that are abundantly beyond honestly things that I think to ask God for on a regular basis. And now he's saying, and God is able to do far more abundantly even than all these things. Why? Because God is great and mighty and high and lifted up and far above all that we could really imagine, right? Where he would say through his prophet that his, his ways are higher than his, our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So Paul is not merely wishing and he's not just hoping. I just hope, God, that you would do this. No, he's not just hoping. He's praying full of faith, believing that God is not only able but willing to do that which he is asking him to do. And so he's filled with faith and trust that he's asking God to do something that God is not only able to do, but God is actually willing to do. Remember when we walked through Luke and over and over again we saw that we needed someone who not only had the ability, but also had the authority to do what we needed, but that, the ability and the authority was not enough. There was one more thing that was needed, and it was the actual affection 
for the one who needed the doing. And in Christ, church, we have God coming to us, not only with ability and authority, but with affection to do for his church all that is required. Praise God. I want to remind you what the preacher in Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, he says, must believe that he exists, one, and that he rewards those who seek him. Learn that in the King James, who diligently seek him, right? That, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Meaning what? That as we come to him, as we press into him, we're reminded in James that as we draw near to God, that he draws near to us. And as we press into him and diligently seek him, we find a God who again says through the prophet Jeremiah that if you seek me with all of your heart, you will, I will be found by you, says the Lord. It's a promise. That there's this God who, like a father with his children, is playing hide-and-seek. And though he could play hide-and-seek better than any of us, and we would never be able to find him unless what? Unless he revealed himself to us. And God is saying, I promise that if you seek me, I will be found by you, says the Lord. That through creation, through his word, he's saying, promises that if we will seek him, we will find him. Perhaps you're here today and you feel that you have no faith or that your faith is lacking. You say, well, then how can I ever please God? If, if it's impossible to please God without faith and I don't have faith or my faith is lacking, then how, how will I please God? First of all, I want to remind you that Christ Jesus pleased God for you and on your behalf. That he was the man of faith that endured all for you and in your place. But beyond that, we need to be reminded that our faith is not something that we stir up in ourselves, but rather is a gift from God himself. And so if you are there, you must be reminded that faith is a gift, and we have not because we ask not. Ask, ask him, even now, ask him to grant you the faith to believe and trust in him, to trust his word and to know that he indeed is able. Amen? We want to confess again with the preacher in Hebrews, that in Hebrews 10.23, that not only is he able, but he's faithful. That the one who promised is faithful. Amen? God is a faithful God. And so we look to him, And we ask that our faith would be built, that it would grow, that we, our hearts of affection would grow for God. And so how is this done? Well, this is done, it's accomplished exactly the way that Paul is leading us in this prayer by lifting his eyes to God. He's not looking at himself or at his audience. He's not looking at the Ephesians to which he's writing to get busy accomplishing, uh, you know, getting this power through their spirit and the inner being. He's not looking to them to 
figure out how to make Christ dwell in their hearts through faith. He's not looking at them to accomplish being rooted and grounded in love. No, rather he's looking unto the one who is able to do abundantly more. God is the one who is acting and so Paul goes in prayer to the one who is able. We're reminded even here at the end of this discourse that we are not the point of this story. We're not. And that's not what we came here for today. We did not come here today to find out what our role is to play. Rather, we are here today to look unto Christ and to see what He has done and what He is doing. Remember that Paul, over the last three chapters, has been pulling back the curtain, as it were, on the mystery of salvation. And he's letting us know that justification, our right standing before God, on its own is not even the main point or even the end game of salvation. But rather, how the work of Jesus' redemption of the people that God has chosen for him is legally accomplished. That's what's happening. Paul's pulling back the curtain so that we can see on display how God is working out this redemption. But what we need to remember is that that redemption itself is not even the point of the story. Our salvation is not the point, but rather the outcome of God's working throughout the history of redemption. So what's the point then? I mean, I thought this was about us getting saved here. If that's, if that's not the point, then what's, what's the point? What does Paul end with? To him be glory. What, what is the point of all this? To him be glory. What is this all about? To him be glory. That's what this is about. That's what all of this is about. It's about the glory of God. In your life, in whatever role you may play, what that is about is the glory of God. That's what Paul is pointing us to, that the end game is the praise of God's glory and grace. Why? Because salvation, and by that we mean all the work that redemption encompasses, is totally a work of the triune God. It's totally a work of the triune God. And it is accomplished completely and totally apart from us, and it is heralded over us with an invitation to enter into the grace offered to us by the one who is, Romans 3.26, both the just and the justifier. Amen? This is a work of the Father in the Son and by the Holy Spirit such that with confidence... We can say with Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. 
This means that the new birth, this work, is a work of the Spirit in His sovereign freedom, not ours. That it is not an event that we ourselves can bring about any more than we had anything to do with our natural birth. Anybody? You signed up for that one? Like took a poll on parents, like organized the whole thing, orchestrated it. You had a lot to do with that, right? And you had just as much to do with the new birth in Christ. We cannot choose to be born again any more than any of us chose to be born in the first place. And why? Because there is an outside force at work. Desire and efforts combining into the ultimate conception of a child. So it is with our new birth. It is an outside force at work wrapped up in the desires of God to bring a child into his family. The difference is, is that God goes and adopts his children from the morgue. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see, salvation is a monergistic work accomplished by God, meaning that there's one mono, one person working. The gospel that is the power of God unto our salvation is not something that we participate in. For if it were, then we would have a little flag to wave with our name on it. Such as it is, what do we have to boast in? Nothing of our own work. So Paul says, I will boast in Christ who accomplished this work for me. We're not trying to accomplish some piece or part of our own redemption. Rather, we simply hear, believe, and receive, and then are transformed. We don't even change. Can you grasp that? We don't even change. We are transformed. What's happening? Again, there is an outside work an outside force working on us. He is the one who changes our desires. And from that change of our desires, what happens? The fruit of that begins to show up in our lives as we are sanctified and conformed into the image of the Son day by day. We don't change, we are changed. Made new, reborn, or born again. Amen? And so we come singing one song. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross of Christ I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross of Christ I cling. Which means that when it comes to this cosmic pageant, this unfolding of characters over time, 
that you are not the main character. God is. And if that's news to you this morning, if that offends your common sensibilities, it is because we have bought the lie that this world and all that's in it is about us. And we have tried to make ourselves the center of a story about God. It would be like going downtown to the Majestic, paying a ticket to go and watch an awesome show, and all while the spotlight is on center stage and there's a story that's unfolding and taking place, one of the actors suddenly goes rogue and off on the side starts doing their own play all by themselves in the shadows off to the side. Not only would that be really, really bad, it adds nothing to the greater drama of what's taking place and there's no way that it can carry the same weight as the story that's unfolding on the stage. Not only that, the one who the play is really about is not going to share the glory with the understudy who went rogue off to the side. And eventually, the wrath of the director or the main character is going to just be displayed as they take that rogue person out, right? We would expect nothing less. And we find ourselves in the same scenario. We're showboating, trying to steal the show from the true character that this whole thing is about. Most of us, not even doing it on purpose, we've been taught that it's about us. And we've gladly received that news and entered into that side show, freak show, off to the side, trying to make it about us. We've been told that we are the point of the story, that this is all about us. But that is like saying that you, shining a flashlight up into the night sky, that somehow you're able to outshine the moon. Or to come and make a lamp to rival the sun by day. It's impossible. You cannot do it. And even if you were for a moment to distract someone's attention for any length of time, think about this. If perhaps your attention has been diverted for any length of time, God's glory, like the sun, is no less blazing and no less beneficial simply because you've been ignoring it. I mean, let's even think about it this way. Tomorrow, the moon will shadow, overshadow the sun for a brief moment in time, but it does not cease the sun from shining. And it is no less blazing when it does. We've made ourselves the point of the story. We've made Christianity a religion centrally about us a man-centered religion, which is what, church? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Which is something that God does not take lightly. 
see the first ten rules, commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And God has said in Isaiah 42 verse 8 that he will not share his glory with another. So, I'm sorry. It, this, all of this is not about you. It's not about you. And it is the grace of the Lord for you to learn that, believe it, understand it, and begin to submit to it today. To learn that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It is about God. Who He is. What He has done and is doing. And it's not that you don't have a part to play, what it means is that your part is to bring the main character glory. That's what your part is for. That's what your role is for. It's to bring Him glory. It means it's not your show. You've been graciously invited into the most incredible story that is not about you, but it involves you at the most fundamental level because who this main character is and what he has done and is doing is what has created your own identity. Because you exist to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Westminster Catechism, question one. This is not about us, but it has great effect on us. It's not about us. It's about Him. A gracious Father who has, let's recount it, Ephesians chapter 1, a gracious Father who has done something. What has He done? Verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Who before the foundation of the world predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. He's the one working. He's the one acting. He's the one that all of this is about. And we are the ones who by His grace are simply receiving. Praise be to God. To the one who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or think or imagine. Think about the prodigal son coming to the father and bowing down before him. And what what was he able to ask, think, or imagine that he might conceivably request of his father? Make me a servant. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons the one who is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. 
I mean, there's not one of us here who could conceivably think about approaching God in our sin and asking him to make us his children. Maybe his servants. Probably not even that. To the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask, think, or imagine. Praise be to the one who's able to do more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. You see, church, this is not about us, but it is for us. We are not acting, but we are being acted upon, and the result is all of grace. And so we receive, and as we receive, what should our response be? The same doxological praise and adoration that Paul has here as he's praying these things is the very same response that should come from our hearts. Because we were created for worship. That's what we were created for, to give glory to God. That's worship. We were created to give glory and we will either worship and glorify God or we will worship and glorify something or someone else. Most often, little old me. Right? Most often ourselves. Because we fail to understand that God's glory is our greatest good. That God's glory is our greatest good. He is God, we are not. And when He is honored in His rightful place in our lives, when His glory is what we live for and seek, then our lives are being lived as they were designed to be lived. And what does that mean? It means everything begins to come into alignment because we're finally existing in the role and the place of the story that we were crafted and designed for. And so order is restored and life's greatest good, which is knowing God and being loved by Him, is front and center again. And so Paul has supremely and expertly refocused our eyes upon that which alone has the ability to change and sustain us, which is God himself. And he has shown us that all he has done, all that God has done in acting upon us and making himself known, making us his own, which means everything that we have, we have because of him. And everything that we are, we are because of him. Which means everything belongs to him. Which means all praise belongs to him. Which means we have everything to praise him for to worship Him, to adore Him, to make much of Him, to be in awe of His beauty and greatness, His holiness on display, which is His glory and which is the supreme motivation for all 
that God himself has done. Why is God doing all this? For his glory. Why did God go through all of these things? It's for his glory. Remember, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what is the chief end of God? To glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Or as John Piper puts it, to enjoy glorifying himself forever. This is his story. Therefore, it is his glory that is the aim. This means that God's glory should be our central aim in all that we say or do. So that as we turn the page on chapter 3 of Ephesians and we get into chapter 4, 5, and 6 and we hit that first therefore in chapter 4 verse 1 we might rightly understand that everything that Paul is going to call us to do which is in line with and worthy of the call with which he has called us that all of that is meant to be done saying soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Great things he has done. Why? Because everything that Paul's about to call us to, we could not, cannot, will not do in and on our own or by our own strength, it will only be because God has answered the prayer of Paul. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. The only way chapter 4, 5, and 6 are happening is as God answers that prayer for us and in us. And so I want to encourage you to get to know God's glory. Study it in Scripture. Look for it in nature. And when you find it, and you will, remember, if you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29, verse 13, I will be found by you, says the Lord. When you look for it, when you seek it, you will find it. And when you do, let your affections for God be inflamed and lift up words and whispers and shouts and songs of praise to God, the God of your salvation and the King of glory. Amen? Do not seek glory. Seek His glory and find your place in His story. Will you stand with me this morning? And we will pray out of Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. O God, to you alone who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of the Spirit that is at work within us, to you, O God, be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.